Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, or if you'd like to use one of the Bibles that are in the baskets there, we're in the book of Philippians. It's one of Paul's letters. Book of Philippians on these Bibles in the, uh, the baskets, it's on page 1710. Once you're there, hold your place there and then turn also to the book of Acts, chapter 16. In the decades after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the church was growing. In the book of Acts, we hear of a group gathered together on the festival occasion of Pentecost. And it was people from all kinds of nations and uh, languages who had gathered for that, uh, that large festival in the city. And, and they heard the gospel preached by the apostles in their own languages. Multiple apostles speaking in different languages. Many of the languages the apostles didn't even know it was a miraculous sign that God had given. And on a single day, it says that 3,000 heard the gospel and believed. And then those people went home to their various countries and nations and cities and towns some of them nearby and some of them far, and the word of Jesus' death and resurrection began to spread throughout uh, the region of Judea and then also into the other regions around, into the eastern part of Europe. And in that eastern part of Europe, there's a city called Philippi. We don't know how much of the word of the gospel came to the city of Philippi by the time the Apostle Paul, some uh, couple decades later, uh, goes to this city and, and teaches them about Jesus. There were some Jews there who had, started, who had been gathering together uh, to pray by the river in the city, and that's where Paul meets them. I want to read a portion of that story here from Acts chapter 16 of what, what happens to set a little bit of the context for uh, this letter uh, to the Philippian church, the church that was in the city of Philippi in uh, the eastern part of Europe, a region called Macedonia. I'm in uh, Acts chapter 16, verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to uh, Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. 
and after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Let's read a little bit further. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. If you look at the next title, it says that that jailer is converted, or one of the jailers is converted. He becomes a believer through this presence of Paul in prison. Now turn back with me to the letter to the Philippians, same city. Philippians, we've said, is a city that was populated uh, massively by uh, retired Roman soldiers. It was a Roman city. The Jews in the city would have been uh, very much a minority. And clearly it was only a few women uh, who were going down to the river on a weekly basis to pray. No building, no synagogue, no church, just down to the river. And yet out of this city grows what many would say, argue, is one of the healthiest churches we see in the New Testament. So after this event with Paul there, the church continues to grow in the city of Philippi. And, and they, they are the model church in many ways. And Paul writes letters to many cities, churches in many cities. We say that there are churches in many cities. We mean as there There might be one or more gatherings in those cities, but they're connected. They have a a connection with one another. And so when Paul writes these letters, the the letters are read to all the believers in the cities. Galatia, Ephesus, Thessalonica, Rome. Interesting side note, yesterday um, was a meeting of the presbytery uh, that, that we are a part of, Presbyterian, and pro- most people don't even know what that means. They sort of associate it with maybe Catholic or Episcopal or something. Um, but what Presbyterian means is that the, uh, is the elders of the church get together uh, from in the region. It's a regional thing. In our case, San Diego and Orange Counties and the two counties to the east of us as well. And sometimes... Uh, 
we do have to make difficult uh, decisions or, or care for churches that are going through difficulty. Yesterday's meeting was actually a, a fairly difficult one with a number of issues. The point that I want to make here is uh, that, that the cities were united in their, in their faith, at least to some degree. Oftentimes the cities had besetting issues that were kind of <coughs> characteristic of the problems in the city. Corinth was kind of famous for being um, uh, an immoral city. It was a young person's place of business, marketplace. And the issues that were there tended to be uh, uh, along the lines of, uh, of gluttony, sexual sin, things like that. Other cities had other problems. Philippi in this letter, doesn't really have a besetting issue. There's no particular doctrinal problem going on in the city. But Paul draws on some of his own experience in preaching the gospel to set a course for the letter, a purpose for the letter. We read that last part that Paul was thrown in prison in the city of Philippi, but Paul is thrown in prison a number of times for preaching the gospel. And when he writes the letter to the church in Philippi, he's writing from a prison someplace. Don't know exactly where it was. It might have been in Rome. It might have been in uh, uh, the, the region that we know now as, as Israel. Uh, at the time, would have been called that. But Israel on the coast, there's a, a prison in, in Caesarea. The place isn't necessarily all that important. But Paul is in prison for preaching the gospel. And here's the interesting thing that some of the other preachers, probably in the place where he's in prison, and we'll say Rome, some of the other preachers of the gospel were celebrating the fact that that Paul had been thrown in prison because they were jealous of Paul's effectiveness in ministry. They were motivated by envy, and um, uh, they're motivated, it's, it's in... Sorry, just uh, envy, verse 15 in, in Philippians chapter 1. They were motivated by envy and rivalry and selfish ambition. And yet amazingly, Paul writes this, 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 this uh, explanation. He says, it doesn't matter as long as they are preaching Christ. They're not preaching false doctrine now. They're preaching the right doctrine, but for the wrong motives. He says, but what does it matter as long as they are preaching Christ I rejoice. And he appeals to the Philippian church because the Philippians have this heartfelt connection with the Apostle Paul. They've given him financial help. They've prayed for him. They've entered into difficulty with him. And Paul's purpose in this letter is that they would take that relational connection that they have and build upon it and grow in their love and affection and understanding of the gospel, grow in their maturity so that they would continue to abound in all the ways that God desires his church to abound. They're not staying stagnant in their faith, even though they're the model church, they don't have any of these particular issues 
Even the, the false, the preachers who are preaching from false motives, may, they might have been in Philippi, but probably they're not even in Philippi. And yet Paul writes to this church and encourages them to, to keep pressing on, to continue to grow with this word of encouragement that happens in chapter 1, verse 6. I'm going to pick up chapter 1, verse 6 here and read through uh, verse 11. That, that, that he, Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul has this, this hope, this, this, this hope not in all of the people's faithfulness that they're going to continue to grow, but he has this hope that God himself is going to be faithful to his word and finish what he started, bring it to completion. Let's keep reading. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That's a long introduction. That's really half the message this morning. But let's go ahead and pray uh, for the rest of it, and uh, then we'll look at what this means. Father, we thank you for the way that you work in real uh, places and in real people. That this city of Philippi is not just an abstracted idea, and the letter to the Philippians are not just uh, uh, abstract concepts but that they are your very words to very real people. Will you speak to us as your people, very real people, in this place this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most famous passages of Scripture that almost everyone has heard, whether they're a Christian or not, at least in American culture, because almost everyone has been to a wedding where it's read, is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Or again, the Apostle Paul, right in the church in Corinth, says, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove, as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. 
Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. I want you to see a couple things in reading this passage. The first one is to be able to identify some way that you and I all fail in our attempts to love. I can't imagine there's anyone in here who's not convicted by some of this description of love by the reality that we don't measure up to these standards. Love is difficult. Sometimes we think love is childish. Even in the language that Paul used in the letter to Philippians, it's it's almost gushing with emotion and affection. I hold you in my heart. I, I feel this way about you. I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. We think oftentimes that love is a childish ambition or a childish feeling that that we give away or we get grow out of and and more mature love doesn't have that kind of feeling or that kind of language. But the message of the gospel turns some of our expectations on their head and they it resets our our hope that we would experience this type of heartfelt affection, gushing kind of experience. And that that is not childish. It's the opposite of childish. It is is an example of maturity. That strength does not have to give way to affection. That knowledge can exist without love, but love can never exist without knowledge and connection. (coughs) Love is faith put into practice. It is the ways of God. It is the very law of God, God's commandments put in practice. It's where the rubber meets the road. We can have all kinds of great ideas and concepts be theologically accurate. We can even have the words of God Himself speak through us as a prophet. And Paul warns us this important warning that if that does not result in real life love practiced in the difficult circumstances of everyday life, it is empty and meaningless and it will not save you. More than that, it will cut your life short. 
your experiences will only be half experienced, half lived. They will be unfulfilling. They may be right. You may get wealthy. You might experience success in life. People may come to you for help and advice. But if you have not love that practices in these very practical ways of not boasting and not being envious, not being arrogant or rude, being patient and kind, not prone to irritability, resentful of others, delighting in wrongdoing. It's very parallel with the fruit of the Spirit that Paul writes about in his letter to the church in Galatia. won't read all of those fruit of the Spirit, but I'll use that to help us tie back to our passage for today, verse 11, where Paul says that when we experience this kind of love, when we live into that, and that love abounds all the more in our lives, we will be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. The fruit of righteousness is not a term that Paul chooses lightly or just at random. Fruit obviously was something that was produced from a tree. A healthy tree produced fruit, if it was a fruit tree, of course. A healthy tree produced fruit. So the person who is righteous produces the fruit of righteousness which is love. Now love is the same thing as good works. It's impossible to separate the two. The commandments of God, Jesus summarizes, are two things, that we would love the Lord our God and that we would love one another. The Ten Commandments that were given to the people of Israel and to us by Moses, through Moses can be broken up into two sections, and the first four, roughly, teach us how to love God, and the last six teach us how to love one another. That's an oversimplification, because when we love one another, effectively, we are also loving God. Love is the aim of the commandments. But love needs to be defined a little bit more fully because everybody speaks about love. John Lennon, of course, all we need is love. Well, what is love? What is love? Is love just that gushy feeling? We've already looked at how Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 13 that love love is difficult. Love has the interest of somebody else first in our hearts and minds. Love requires a strength and endurance and even a security in ourselves that we can give of ourselves to somebody else and put ourselves in a vulnerable position because we then depend on them reciprocating that to us. 
it's not insignificant that Jesus and the Apostle Paul push us further than we are at all comfortable going when they say, you've loved your friends and family, that's great. But God wants you to love your enemy as well. For when we love our enemy, we put ourselves in the most vulnerable spot because we're almost sure that that love will not be reciprocated. Unless, of course, that enemy is won over by our love. That enemy is turned away from their wrongdoing or their hatred to us. Their eyes are opened by God's Spirit and they turn and reciprocate the love. Violence, major theme throughout the scriptures, violence, when it's reciprocated, spirals out of control. Violence is, in some senses, the opposite of love. And vengeance is the ever-going, ever-increasing ever reciprocation of hatred in the form of violence. Vengeance unchecked would lead to the absolute annihilation of the human race. For which of us haven't had to turn away from some kind of wrongdoing and say, I'm not going to continue the wrongdoing, doing it again to them. Now, it's interesting because in the Old Testament, we have explained very clearly that the punishment for crime should fit the crime, an eye for an eye. And Jesus helps us to see a little bit more of what that means. But the concept of justice is that if you steal something from somebody else, you should have to give that back, even with some penalty for the, for the inconvenience of it. And so you have to give back, according to one Old Testament law, fourfold, four times what you stole. Now, if that continues unabated and, and then the, 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 that concept of reciprocated or, or revenge, uh, taking revenge for wrongdoing, you can see how it would not take much time at all for, for, for human race to be, to be gone. God speaks and he says there's a need for justice. There's a need for justice, but there's an opportunity for grace. There's a need for justice. There's an opportunity for grace. For if wrongdoing is not punished in some ways, some way, then there is nothing to stop those wrongdoers from continuing their their bad behavior. Now it's at this point that we like to think, oh, I'm glad they're, they're being punished over there, those old, old wrongdoers. But where we most need to see that when we read that list of love from 1 Corinthians 13 and we're convicted in our heart that we haven't lived up to those things, that we're guilty of the wrongdoing as well. That if it was reciprocated on us, that when we failed to love, that other people would not love us in return. Or take that the next step. 
that when we fail to love others as God has made us to do and commanded us to do, that God himself would turn his love away from us. You see, that's the just penalty for not loving, is that we would not be loved in return. That's what we feel like other people deserve. When they fail to love us, we're going to turn away from them. We're not going to love them. But here's, here's the grace of God, is that when we did not love him, he loved us. It goes all the way back to the Garden of uh, Eden and Adam and Eve when they, they, they did the one thing God said, warned them not to do, don't do this, or it will break our relationship, it will break the love. And they did it, and they ran and hid from God, and God pursued them. He asked them the difficult question, what did you do? And they were honest with God. They weren't quite honest uh, about their motives. They're casting their motives on other people. They were honest. They said, well, we, we, we did the thing. And God said, this has broken our relationship, but, but I am going to make a way that love can win in the end. By God's grace, he provides a reconciliation, a justice, a justice satisfied. And that justice is explained in language that the people could understand, as I mentioned earlier, a language that people could understand in, in the animal sacrifices that were meant to be uh, um, a substitutionary atonement, a, a penalty, that, that the, but the animal sacrifices weren't sufficient. They were, they were just a way of explaining the language of so that God could communicate in language that people understood. And they pointed to the work that Jesus was going to do work that Jesus has done, and that is he died the death that we deserved. Now, what does that mean? We hear it sometimes, but it means that for a time, Jesus experienced the broken fellowship, the broken love with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. You see, the Trinity is an important thing, doctrine of the Christian faith, because in the Trinity, we see perfect relationship, we see perfect love where each of the persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, demonstrate the, the, the love that's explained in 1 Corinthians 13. They have different roles, different functions. They delight in the other person's functions. And when, when Jesus died on that tree, he became a curse, it's described. He became shameful. He took the sins of humanity on himself in a way that was, made him completely unlovable. And because God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit had set this plan out in advance as the way to save humanity, Jesus took all these things on himself and he became unlovable. And in taking all those on, on himself, he took them away from us, took them away from, and gave humanity a way to receive his righteousness to make us lovable. That's the concept of substitutionary atonement in the language of love. Now, Jesus didn't stay in the grave. He endured that for a time. 
And if you want to get technical about that time, it's an interesting theological discussion. But basically, he endured that for a time, and that time was actually leading up to the cross, leading up to his death. When he was hanging on a tree, he was cursed. That was the time when he yells out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not when he dies and he somehow, you know, the, the, like the creed says, he, he, he descended into hell. He, when he dies, he's with God. He's not... He's not being punished uh, in the death itself. Whole nother discussion we can have another time. But he experienced that shame and that isolation on the cross, hanging on the cross in the time leading up to the cross as the ultimate example of loving someone's enemies when they didn't deserve it. He loved us as his enemies when we didn't deserve it by bearing the penalty that we deserved. Now, when we understand that, and Paul's instruction, that's the gospel, by the way. Right? That's the gospel. And he says that in verse 7. He says, both in my imprisonment and, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. He says, you are partakers with me of this grace that I just described. There is a deep, heartfelt affection and, and unity between, uh, between people who have experienced that kind of, of love. And then Paul explains, verse 9, And it is my prayer, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. With the truth, the reality of that gospel in our lives, that our love for one another, we've already defined what that love is to a, a great degree, we may abound more and more, but he explains what that means in, in this particular context a little bit more. He says two things, with knowledge and all discernment. With knowledge and all discernment, so that, whenever you see a so that, it's a purpose clause in the Greek, it's very important, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness, it comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. All of this continues to go on and on, eventually producing the fruit, but I just want to highlight two things with knowledge and all discernment. First, love requires knowledge. Love is not easy. Love is not always obvious either. Love oftentimes is something that we feel and we want to do for other people, whether it's people that we love, family members, spouse, boyfriend or girlfriend. We love to do things for that other person. It's easy, but sometimes love is difficult. When somebody is doing something that we know is going to be damaging in their life and we have to speak words of correction. And sometimes love is difficult to even figure out how to do that because if we just spoke words of correction every time we saw them, we would usually, oftentimes, not actually be loving. We'd be more interested in being right. Love requires wisdom, and so knowledge refers to the understanding of what is right and what is wrong. A knowledge of God's rules, his commandments, his laws, 
how to apply those, and then all discernment is understanding the situations that we find ourselves in where we need to rightly apply the truth. All discernment is using wisdom. It's the real-life circumstances and situations like a group of people gathered to pray in a Roman city of Philippi. Like a person living in a family that's a difficult situation, all kinds of conflict and knowing when to say what, when to do what. How to give love that is both patient and kind and yet not enabling other people in their sin, in their wrong. Love is difficult, but love is worthwhile. And the only way we can love is because we've been first loved by God so deeply as Jesus has loved us. As we go through the letter to the church in Philippi, we're going to see that Paul is concerned that they would grow into this love And some of the keys to that love are understanding how Christ was the opposite of envy and boasting. But Jesus was the example of humility. The person who had every reason to boast, every right to boast, and yet he chose not to, in part to save us and in part to give us the example Paul says in chapter 3, this is pressing on. It requires hard work. Press into it. Then in chapter 4, helps us to see the importance of contentment and the dangers of anxiety in our lives. He says, I've learned the secret to being content in any and every situation. Can you say that? Do you know the secret of being content in any and every situation? Well, we started down that road and finding it in Christ. But as we go through the rest of the letter, we'll learn and see more and more of what, uh, what that looks like and how God's made it available to us. Let's stop there. Let me pray for us as our musicians come up and we'll continue our worship. Jesus, we are amazed at the way that you have loved us when we were unlovable. That you have taken away our sin and replaced it with your righteousness. Father, love is difficult, but worthwhile. Will you help us to desire that? Faith, hope, and love abide, but the greatest of these is love. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't have the bulletin with me. Let's, uh, oh, I do. Let's stand to sing, stretch, warm up a little bit. Feel free to move. The heat obviously did not come on. You need to dance, you can, but this is a tough song to dance to. There is a fountain filled with blood. Let's let's sing.